Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show, and today we'll be discussing how we can transform our work lives, improve work experience, how we need to reframe our problems, move into action, and how it can help us to create our dream job. I'm joined today by guest Bill Burnett. Bill Burnett is the executive director of the Life Design Lab at Stanford. He got his BS and MS in product design at Stanford and has worked professionally on a wide variety of projects ranging from the award-winning Apple PowerBooks to the original Star Wars action figures. He holds a number of mechanical and design patents and design awards for a variety of products, including the first Slate computer. Bill is co-author of the book we're discussing today, Designing Your New Work Life, How to Thrive and Change and Find Happiness at Work. You can find out more information at his website, designingyour.life, again, designingyour.life, and on Twitter uh, at the handle at dyourlife, and then his personal account is at wburnett. So welcome to the Yoga Hour, Bill Burnett. I'm really delighted you could join me today on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I think this is going to be a great conversation. I don't often get the chance to talk about the designing your life stuff from this point of view. Well, good. So before we dive into our dialogue about transforming our job and improving our work experience, let's start with a present moment awareness. Let's start being right where we are, right here and right now. So let's begin by just letting go of whatever we were working on just in the last moment. Let's forget about anything that might be coming up later on today and just be right here, right now and start by feeling our bodies in space. Just noticing whatever we're doing, we might be sitting or standing, walking, and just feeling our bodies in space and particularly feeling the surfaces that support our weight. And then turning our attention to the breath that wonderful tool that's always with us and just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath, the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling the warm air flowing out. And as we rest here, right where we are, Here's something to contemplate, a teaching from the founder and spiritual director of the Yoga Hour Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien, from her book, The Jewel of Abundance. We arrange conditions in our mind conducive to success by changing any thought patterns that are not consistent with thriving. 
Most of us have debilitating self or other critical thoughts that arise either occasionally or frequently. If we consistently focus on these negative inputs or allow them to run in the background unchecked, we undermine our ability to lift ourselves up and connect to the spiritual power within us. We have a powerful choice to make. When we notice negativity pervading our thoughts, we can pause, consider what the opposite would be, and then introduce that opposite as a new, more useful thought into the mental field. Oh. So once again, Bill Burnett, welcome to the Yoga Hour podcast. It's really great to have you on and to discuss your book, Designing Your New Work Life, for a lot of reasons. Of course, people spend so much of their life at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's great to be able to focus on that uh, during this podcast. You've written two books about design thinking, or possibly, I don't know if you consider the rewrite of the second book uh, <laughs> with the additional chapters that you added to it. Maybe that's your third book, um, which you changed in the aftermath of the of the COVID-19 pandemic. So what is it about design thinking that speaks to you? What what has drawn you to it? Well, I mean, I think it goes back to, uh, you know, a young 18-year-old kid. I grew up in Boston, but I got, I got this nice letter from Stanford, and I went off to California to find out what this university was all about. And it turned out, of all the places in the world, I was kind of a nerdy physics science kid, and then, but I loved I'm still a painter. I loved art. I loved the expression that comes with art and the sort of open questions that you get to ask. And it turned out they had this crazy program at Stanford. We used to call it human-centered design. Now we call it design thinking. And it was a combination of art and science and psychology and anthropology. And I'm like, this is perfect. This is me. This is this is what I want to be. I want to be a designer. Um, I, you know, I, I always drew pictures and, and always had ideas and I filled sketchbooks with, with, with crazy stuff. And I didn't realize you could get paid to do that. So, um, <laughs> so that was, the, that was my, my personal entry into the field of design. And I really, honestly, I had no idea that there was even a profession called design when I went to school. And this is back, you know, in the ice age when dinosaurs roamed the Stanford <laughs> campus. Um, but, but, you know, moving forward in my career and, you know, at places like Apple and, and some startups that I was in and designing toys for kids and designing all sorts of things in a, when I was a consultant, I realized that like, well, of course, the whole world is designed. We were just talking about the medical system, right? Laurel was uh, at one point a doctor in, in Palo Alto Medical Center. And, and um, everything is designed, but a lot of it's designed haphazardly. It just, it just happens and then it gets codified into, well, this is the way we do things. Right. But it isn't designed around human needs or, or making it you know, frictionless to access services or anything else. And so I realized um, that, well, so our version of design, design thinking, we say, don't start with the problem, start with people, start with empathy. Mm-hmm. So it's this really deep, a deep idea that, Humans can connect to each other and understand each other, even if I'm not a doctor or I'm not a, you know, a steam fitter or a bricklayer or a neurosurgeon. I, as a designer, using empathy and some you know, observational techniques that we get from anthropology, 
you know, how do you study the strange tribe of neuroscientists? Um, well, you, you do what anthropologists do when they're, when they're you know, studying cultures. How do you understand someone who's really different from you? We're doing a lot now in what we call at the D School Liberatory Design. Like, how do we work with, uh, you know, communities of color uh, and underrepresented minorities and um, the LBGDQ plus, you know, um, population? You don't have to be that person to have empathy for that person. Mm-hmm. And what you're really doing is you're co-creating. You're unleashing the, the creativity of the folks you work with to come up with solutions that make their lives better. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it, yeah. sometimes people look at design and they think it's very superficial. Oh, you make, you know, like at Apple, we certainly made beautiful things. We made beautiful, I think the most beautiful computers, but, but it wasn't, that wasn't the goal. Right. The goal was to make things that were easy to use and, 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 uh, you know, the, the average person could figure it out. And, you know, back when windows was complicated and, and the Macs were so easy, it was all about you know computers for the rest of us is was the tagline, and so this so I, I I'm I'm always attracted and re, and sort of refall in love with the field of design when it comes from a place of empathy mm-hmm. and compassion literally compassion for people right and this, this right. is the tie into yoga and lots of other practices almost every wisdom tradition on the planet says that if you want to be happy. You have to have compassion for your fellow souls, right? You, you, everyone is on this journey, and compassion is what makes it, you know, not only livable, but how you thrive, how you how you enjoy, you know, a, a well lived life. And so, at the base of what I do is empathy for people. It's easy. Yeah. To, it's easy to like. Uh-huh. Oh, that that was so great. One of the things I enjoyed about, um, well, the book is uh, I also have an interest in design. I was mentioning to you that I had an opportunity to work with some designers in my medical career when we were designing the redesigning the primary care experience. Um, I was drawn to the quote from the this quote from the premise, designers love problems and you can't solve a problem you're not willing to have. And that I just thought was a very different way <laughs> of looking at problems. Designers love problems. So would you say more about that since that's not the typical attitude we have when there's a problem? Yeah. Well, I mean, the you know, I'm both an artist and a designer in art. You just start with a blank canvas and figure out what you want to do. In design, you always do start with some kind of a prompt. Hey, let's 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 make the patient experience better, you know, in in the, you know. Uh, emergency room in uh, you know, p- pediatrics, whatever. So you start with the pump. Someone says, "Hey, you know, we've we've been serving our, our our patients, our customers, whatever, and you know, there's a lot of problems, and they're not happy. And so you start with something that's either out of balance or it's not optimized, and then you and then you get a chance to do you know empathy and redefining and brainstorming and coming up with lots of ideas, and you really are co-creating with the people who have the the quote the problem." So the reason I say we like problems is that that's what that's what gets us started. Right. Now, ninety nine percent of the time, the problem that is presented, hey, it's hard to fill out this form, and that's why the patients are unhappy, is not the actual problem. Right. I mean, it's it's all always much deeper, much broader, much more abstract than that. And so the whole the whole idea of starting with empathy is to go in with a beginner's mind mm-hmm. and just say. Hey, what's happening here? Let me observe people. Let me watch their body. Like when they make, when they scrunch up their face and they're trying to do something, that's a sign that something's difficult. When they're smiling, that's a sign that something is delightful. 
And so the observation, the interviewing, the you know do, the day in the life of, there was a classic, the, the folks you were working with at Ivy did a classic experience of the emergency room. And what they did is they took a, they took a, one of the designers and he just pretended to be a patient and he put a, a camera on his chest. Nowadays it would be an iPhone, but it was a little video camera. And he just filmed from the patient's point of view, the entire journey into the, into the emergency room, getting people to talk to you and decide you needed help getting put on a gurney wheeled into some other room and blah, blah, blah. And, and the film of the, the film of the patient experience was basically looking at uh, fluorescent lights and, and roof tiles. <laughs> it was the most boring experience ever. Um, so, uh, and then, you know, you can't solve a problem you're not willing to have. This is the, you know, in classical design thinking, we say we start with uh, empathy, but in designing your life, you actually start before that. There's a step called accept, which is critical. You, you, you can't start, a, you can't work on a problem you're not willing to have. Right. Now, you, you, I'm sure you are, by the way, that I love starting with a little moment of, uh, moment of contemplation and centering. Um, I, do, I don't do something quite as elegant as that, but we do that in the design classes all the time to get people in the room. Um, and, and really, you know, away from their other busy classes and stuff. But the, um, the thing that, that um, happens in um, design and designing your life is you got to accept the pro- you got to decide, you know what, there's something I want to change. Or there's something I want to look into that I'm not, it's not, it doesn't feel like it's in balance yet, or it's not quite what I want. Um, so you can't solve a problem you're not willing to have. You probably have friends who, you know, you have coffee with and they complain all the time about something they complain about their their partner or their neighbor or their condo association or the guy across the street who's too noisy but they don't do anything right they like their problem (laughs) but they like it so much they don't want to they don't want to do anything and so you have to accept that you're the the agent in this process and that you you are the one co-creating this future Mm -hmm. and until you do that nothing happens but once you do that and, and take these little tiny steps we call prototypes, um, this creative agency turns on and then you realize that, you know, that, that there's lots of problems you can solve. And it, and, it's, and it becomes kind of exciting and fun. Um, you lean in with curiosity, you know, one of the designer's mindsets. And once the process gets going, it's pretty transformational. Because yeah. you realize that it, you know, every problem has some kind of a solution or a way to work on it. Right. And that is so important. I think that that uh, moving you from just sort of passively accepting the way things are to then being able to take some small steps that make things better, followed by more small steps that continue you know, to make to make things better. So yeah. you talk about in the book, you talk about happiness and we're going to be talking about work. Um, there, there does seem to be this association of sort of the more that you have, people kind of think that's going to make you happy. And then mm-hmm. one of the one of the yoga main yoga uh, practices is um, self study. And so really looking at, okay, you get the new car that you've wanted forever, or whatever. And you know, so like, how long does that make you? How long does that make you happy? And you realize it's, it's not so long, you know, it's probably you probably lose that happiness even before you get into the first little fender bender or uh, or someone dings your door, you know, in the in the parking lot of your new car. Um, so you describe research in the book that shows that happiness does not come from having more and you write research has made it abundantly clear that one of the secrets to a happy life is to learn how to enjoy what you have 
and you further write, what makes life meaningful and what maximizes your happiness and longevity are relationships, who you love and who loves you. Mm -hmm. And there's a strong correlation between doing something for the benefit of others and living a longer, healthier life. And I was particularly attracted to that idea of doing something for the benefit of others and, and our an association with our happiness, since that is one of the paths of yoga, uh, which is karma yoga or selfless service. So um, would you say a little bit more, perhaps particularly from the work, you know, from a work perspective? So if we're thinking about meaning and we're thinking about happiness, you know, how does that impact, um, you know, how does our experience of work impact that? I mean, we could, we could take the whole hour on this question, but I, I, we've got a lot to talk about. So let me, let me try to be brief. First of all, I teach at Stanford. I'm not allowed to make stuff up. It's a research university. I can't just say, Bill thinks happiness comes from you know, having a poodle. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it, it's a research school and I have to quote research. So uh, it is abundantly clear from the research of Martin Seligman, who was the happiness guy who started positive psychology and now is talking about thriving instead of happiness because there's more to life than just hedonic pleasure, happiness. Um, so the, the research says, you know, win the lottery six, six to 12 months later, you're no happier than you were before you won the lottery. I mean, there, there, all this, this, this notion that more will make me happy. It has a half-life of, you know, six to 12 months. And then you are right back to your set point over and over again. This has been demonstrated by all sorts of different kinds of experiments. The longest longitudinal you know, uh, study of human development and happiness is the Grant study or the Har now called the Harvard study because it combined both two studies, the Grant study and the Glick study. And it started with the class of, of 1936, 37, 38, that, that group of men at Harvard. They're only men at Harvard. Oh, a little shout out. Harvard didn't admit women until 1963. Wow. Jane Stanford admitted women to the very first class of Stanford and insisted that women be part of the university in 1898. Wow. Just a That's little something great, about yeah. the difference between Stanford and Harvard. I'm just saying. <laughs> Um, just saying. So, and, and that study, they, this is 90 years now, they've been following this group of men. And then they added another group of men from South Boston who were not elites. They were just workers. And obviously, the guys in Harvard were pretty elite in the 30s. And they studied them. And then they studied their families and, and spouses and stuff. And they've been studying them for 90, 94, 95 years. Wow. The number one correlate of living longer and living healthier, a longer healthy old age. Not, I mean, we've extended, you know, life to mid eighties for women and almost eighties for men. But the question is, have we extended a healthy life? And not so much. Um, the current work, the Stanford center for longevity is saying that this may be the first generation, the generation we just graduated, will maybe be the first generation to live a healthy 100 years. Wow. Literally be, you know, like, which means you're working for 70, which is a lot of time. Anyway. Um, so the Harvard study says the thing that correlated, it wasn't status, wasn't money, wasn't, you know, and some of these, John Kennedy was in that um, cohort. He was a, oh, wow. turned out to be president, a bunch of Supreme Court justices, senators, you know, captains of industry, whatever. Um, and the guys from South Boston who were laborers, bricklayers and, and union guys. Um, the thing that correlated with happiness wasn't money, wasn't status, wasn't, you know, social position, wasn't. Everybody thought it was going to be genes or, or, or IQ in the 50s. It was all about IQ. No, zero correlation. What correlated to long, happy lives was relationships. If in your 50s, you could cite that you had strong relationships in your family and, and external to your family, you're, you were connected to your community and you did something in service to others. Ah, compassion. 
oh, it comes back again. Um, you weren't, you, you know, you were on the, you know, Chamber of Commerce, you uh, helped the kids after school program for AYSO soccer, you were a coach, something, uh, uh, something to give to others, not yourself, you lived a happy long life. And so it's like that the research is really clear. It ain't, it's not the things that people chase. Mm-hmm. Not, not that, you know, having money and, and you know, and, and a good job and everything is really is, is important. It's, there's a lot of self-esteem in that. In, in Seligman's model and thriving, accomplishment is one of the elements of thriving. You have, to, you have to see that you have impact in the world. But relationships, happiness, you know, um, and, and other things are just as important. So, you, you know, you, you have to have that. And that's what the research says. Now, um, real quickly, I, you know, as the, one of the few, few tiny things you get as a, a faculty at Stanford is you get to sit up close when we have a speaker. And we had the Dalai Lama oh, wow. probably 10 years ago now, because I was I'd just taking this full-time position. And he came to Stanford and he was at the, in, the, in the basketball arena and I got to sit up kind of close. And somebody asked him, you know, well, what's the secret to Buddhism? Or what's the secret to a happy life? And he said, look, you, you don't have to, be a Buddhist and you don't have to understand anything about, about my philosophy, except these two things. You should very selfishly try to make yourself happy. You should deserve to be happy. You should be super selfish about it. Just try to make yourself happy. And I'm thinking hmm, the Dalai Lama is saying being, being selfish is, is, is a good thing. Surprised me. And then he said, but the thing is, I, you can't help but notice it's hard to be happy when you look around and everybody else is suffering. Mm-hmm. So the secret to happiness is to help relieve suffering mm-hmm. in others. Mm-hmm. He says, if you get those two things, you, you basically know everything I know. There's more. There's the four truths, eight, eightfold path, blah, blah, blah. Lots of, lots of stuff. He says, but make yourself happy and notice that in order to be happy, you have to relieve the suffering of others. Right. Compassion. Right. It's like, okay, everything points to the data says, the spiritual leaders say, the people you know in, in the yoga tradition say, the deep introspection of yourself leads to the conclusion that in order to be happy, <clears throat> you, have to, you have to help reduce suffering. Yeah. Right. However you do it, as a doctor, you do it you know, in your practice. It, at work, you could be an accountant, you could be a barista, whatever there's an opportunity for you to reduce suffering in the world, your, yours and others. So you talk in the book about uh, disengagement, the sort of epidemic that we are mm-hmm. having about with a huge, some, some, I think you quote a Gallup poll that says 69%. That's a huge number, huge percentage of people are disengaged from their work. Yeah. And obviously I would just guess you're not going to be happy at work if you're really, if you're really disengaged. Yeah. Did you want to say anything further about that? Well, it's 60, 69% and then it's like 85% worldwide. I mean, this disengagement number, and it hasn't changed in years. Gallup's been doing this survey for 21, 22 years. Um, and so this is, this, is, this is what's behind the great resignation, the big quit. People went home for COVID and they finally said, look, you know, this job has sucked. It's always sucked. I don't like it. I don't, I don't feel like I'm having any impact. I'm just walking in, going through the motions. Maybe it's fine. It's not bad. It's not toxic or anything, but it's just not you know, floating my boat. And they all decided to quit. Now, I worry about them because 
they didn't quit with a plan. If they just got the book, they could have had a plan. There's four ways you can redesign your job, but um, they quit. And now they're all taking new jobs. And my guess is they're going to end up right back where they started because they're not, they, they're not sure what they're looking for. And when you don't know what you're looking for, you know, everything looks like a job. Um, and over and over again, when you talk to people and you do, the, and you look at the research, people want to feel like their job has some meaning and impact. And it doesn't mean you have to be the CEO. Again, you can be the barista. And, and by reframing what I do, I make people's lives a little better by giving them this delicious cup of coffee or latte with a smile. And I remember their names. Mm -hmm. And when people feel seen, mm -hmm. their day is different. And that's my job. I make people feel seen. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's a cup of coffee involved and I pull some levers and, I, you know, just so everything can be reframed. But the problem is management and the way jobs are structured it's, it's all the old manufacturing model. You know, Henry Ford invented the production line, which was brilliant. It's just what it did is it turned humans into robots and said, you stand here and do the same thing over and over again, a hundred times and we'll make a car. And he broke, he broke, you know, the whole line into, into small tasks that anyone could be trained to do. And they made cars. But that's not the way we work anymore. We work with information. We work with ideas, you know, many, most people anyway, in, in the information economy. And even if you're back on a production line, you know, there's the just stand here and do the same thing over and over again. And then there's a Toyota method of, no, 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 we're making, we're building quality. We're building an experience. When people sit in our car, they feel something about our car. So everything has meaning. It's not about the job you've got. It's about how you frame it or reframe it. Mm -hmm. And what, what management has been woefully inadequate at is explaining to people why the jobs matter. And by the way, that 69% of people who are disengaged, that includes your boss and your boss's boss and her boss and her boss. Um, one of my favorite statistics when we were doing the research for the book, we didn't put it in the book, but um, was that 25% of American workers, a full quarter of American workers would give up their next raise if you would fire their boss. Literally, they would pay you to fire their boss. Okay. So, and by the way, bosses were in that survey and they would pay you to fire their boss. So <laughs> what's going on is nobody's having an honest conversation about what work is about. And, and when you don't, and when all you want to do is optimize the performance of the human for the job, when, when we have our review and it's all about what you can do for me, the boss or me, the company, then we know we're not having a human conversation. Because everything we've done, all the research we've done, all the re all the interviews we've done, all the need finding empathy work we did for the book indicates that people, and more so now than ever, people want a life with a good job in it. So if you don't want to talk about life, you just want to talk about jobs, I know what this is going to be. This is going to be about you getting more out of me. Mm. If you want to talk about my life and how the job fits and how what I'm doing on the job reflects the values and passions I have for the world in my life or where I want to have impact, then we can have a real conversation. And we're doing that with some companies. Some companies realize that they have to have that conversation now because post-COVID workers are like, nope, I'm going to work from home. And um, uh, you know what you're asking me to do, I can easily do without coming to the office. And I, by the way, those disengaged employees, they have meaning and purpose in their lives. They find it in their church, in their yoga circle, in their friends. Nobody tries to, nobody lives a meaningless life on purpose. Right. 
sometimes sometimes it happens or they're not aware or they or you know clearly there, there's addictions and and disease and other things that can confound uh, a life but um, everybody finds it somewhere mm-hmm. yeah so this is about the midway point in the show and as a reminder i'm dr laurel trujillo host and producer of the yoga hour and i'm here today with bill burnett co-author of the book we're discussing today designing your new work life bill is the executive director of the life design lab at stanford you can find out more at his website designing and on twitter it's at d uh, your life. Be your life. Um, we will also uh, have these uh, links on our website at theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com. You can also sign up for our mailing list. Bill, I really want to turn now to some of the mindsets uh, of designer thinking because I thought it would be useful for people to hear about how a designer would think about uh, problems, Um, how to think like a designer. So in the book you write, when designing your work life, you need to know that designers don't think their way forward. Work designers build their way forward. So there are six mindsets of designer thinking that you talk about. Would you give us a brief overview of those uh, six uh, mindsets? I think you've already mentioned a couple of them. Yeah, sure. Um, and and it, it, it is actually the core of the book. It's the core of the classes I teach. It's everything. Um, and, and again, this it sounds simple. Oh, start with empathy. Come up with some ideas. Figure out, you know, build some projects. But, but very deeply, um, what we're trying to, when, I, when I'm, a designer designing a new thing. Like when I was at Apple and we were doing the very first power books, the very first notebooks, nobody knew what a notebook was. There were lots of other things that were around, but nothing had the, the sort of iconic shape and design of a notebook. When to create something new to the world, well, you can't get any data because the future hasn't happened yet. So you're going to have just going to have to make it up. And the way you make it up or the way you sneak up on this idea is you build lots and lots of prototypes, literally physical prototypes. There must've been hundreds of prototypes of, or how would the keyboard fit? Where would the screen go? Would the screen go up and down? Would it go sideways? We just kept building things until we figured out what it would actually look like. So it's the same thing in designing your life. There's no data available about the future of you, this brand new, amazing thing that's going to be the future of you. You'd like it to be more amazing than it is than you are today, or at least you know, you'd like to move it forward a little bit. Right. So what's the point of being a rational skeptic and trying to analyze facts? There's no facts. So the number one mindset is curiosity. When I don't know something, the way I discover and, and learn into the, the, this new thing is curiosity. I let my curiosity, I take my curiosity for a walk and I go, gee, I wonder what it'd be like if I did a podcast. Well, I know this person named Laurel. She could, I could interview her and she'd tell me what doing a podcast is like. I bet it's a lot of work. Um, you know, so curiosity is the number one thing. Um, reframing, because as I said, nine out of 10 times, you got the wrong problem. Mm. And you f- discover the problem by getting out in the world and talking to people. That's the bias to action step. Like when you don't have data, what are you sitting in, the, in your chair analyzing or thinking it or, or um, you know, imagining things? Go out in the world and get some data. Be curious, have a bias to action, and then and let go of the problem that you think you're solving and go find the real problem. That's reframing. Yeah. Um, 
knowing, you know, mindful of process or awareness is just like, well, sometimes in the design process, we're brainstorming, we're coming up with lots of ideas and we don't want to be analyzing or critiquing at that point because otherwise our internal sensor will shut down the, the, the scale of our ideas. But there's other times in the design process when you want to converge and you want to test a hypothesis. So, you know, in your brain, you can't be simultaneously converging and diverging, you, you'll go crazy. So be aware of where you are in the process. Radical collaboration, because the answer is in the world. The answer is in the world with people, typically for, for personal, you know, design challenges. And then storytelling, because, you, you, you know, we're natural storytellers. I found some research that was in the, I put in the book, a researcher in the UK who said, um, storytelling probably had an evolutionary advantage. People who told better stories were more popular in the tribe or had, you know, more progeny or something, but the storytelling is sort of built into our genes. I don't know if there's scientific evidence for that, but it makes sense, right? That people who tell stories are attractive. They're interesting. And when you tell the story of your journey, not to brag or anything, but just to say that I'm in this journey, I'm trying to discover what's next for me. I'm really curious about this sort of stuff. I've talked to these three people and I've learned some amazing things. Mm-hmm. Then, then people are like, oh, wow, what an interesting story. Hey, let me help you. I have some other people you should talk to, or I know another resource you might, a resource you might look at. So, you know, get curious, um, have a bias to action, go out in the world and try stuff, radically collaborate with the world. Um, be aware of where you are in the process. Are you looking for ideas or are you testing ideas? And, um, and then tell your story because people love to help people mm-hmm. and storytellers are attractive people. Mm-hmm. And you know, the more, the more you can engage the world in your journey, the more support you get, the more things show up. I call it the red car effect. You know, you buy, you buy a car and you like a red, you buy, finally buy a red car and then you're, and you're driving down, down the freeway and you notice, look at all these red cars. Where'd all these red cars come from? I've never seen so many red cars. Because <laughs> you, weren't, you weren't looking, the psychologist will say, we don't see what we're looking at. We just see what we're looking for. Right. Which is really powerful, actually. There's a lot of, there's a lot of um, science around that that our attention just is, is you know, we, 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 it's, it's, we preload biases, we preload expectations, and then we look to see if our, if our biases and expectations are true. So one of the most simple ways of creating um, change in your life or doing something creative in your life is to change your internal story. You mentioned it, this in your, in your um, meditation. Mm-hmm. Our internal story is what sets up what we're looking for change your story you change what you find Mm -hmm. and that's what happens when you buy the red car all of a sudden you notice other red cars that's what happens when you change the negative self-talk to positive self-talk it's been demonstrated in tons of research the simplest way to change you know your point of view is the gratefulness journal which we took from positive psychology um if you pay attention to what happened today that you're grateful for, and you do that for six to eight weeks, because the science says it takes six to eight weeks to either start a new habit or get rid of an old one. If you just notice every day for six or eight weeks, something you're grateful for, guess what? You'll stop noticing the stuff that pisses you off. You don't have time. Your brain only has time for one thing. Your brain's pretty simple, right? Pay attention to the good stuff. I'm not paying attention to the bad stuff. Guess what? When you do a when we do an assessment before and after, your overall mood is increased. 
your sense that the world is in a better place than you thought has increased right. and all sorts of other positive. Now we can measure both brain and, and, and internal, like, you know, more oxytocin, less testosterone and, and cortisol, less, you know, less stress hormones, more happiness hormones. It's just change what you're looking for. Right. And you change your life. I always like to give listeners a little practice that they can do. So when I was, you know, looking for that in the book, I thought what might be useful to talk about was um, what you recommend is sort of the beginning process of creating a, a redesign journey to create their uh, someone's dream job. You write about a good work journal. Right. which helps people notice, which we were just talking about, you know, you notice, noticing things, and then to write down what engages them at work, what what energizes them at work, and then what puts them into a state of flow that, you know, that beautiful feeling yeah. like, you know, we're just totally engaged and and happy uh, and, and everything's just flowing. So I thought this was a great tool in using several of the design principles that you just mentioned. So, um, why do you feel that this is a, this is a good place to start, this good work journal? Well, again, it comes from another piece of research. There's the positive psychology guys, and there's a bunch of other guys, Edward Dietschy and folks who look at uh, motivation. And they came up with three, what they call intrinsic motivations, autonomy, relatedness, and connectedness. Or autonomy, I want to be able to do things, you know, and I feel like I have some control. Relatedness is just I want to work with people and I want to be in connection with people. And competence is just, I want, I want to improve my mastery of anything. Uh, Dan Pink had it in his book as autonomy, mastery, and, and um, uh, autonomy, mastery, and um, connection. So, so the, the three columns in the Good Work Journal are, what did you initiate? That's your autonomy. You know? um, who did you help? That's your relatedness. And what did you do to get better at your job? And you just you just have those three columns in every day. You say, oh, well, you know, I learned to do a pivot table in Excel today. That I learned something. I increased my competence. Um, I helped uh, Gladys in accounting put, uh, you know, some paper in the copier. The copier was jammed to help it fix the copier. That was my giving back today of something I did, right? So you just find moments and pay attention to the moments where you either increased your autonomy, your connectedness, or your um, competence. And that has been demonstrated to improve your, your overall sense of well-being. Mm -hmm. um, and, and very much like the, the, the good time journal, which is in the first book, it's just a technique of noticing. And then when you notice, you know, I'm actually not doing anything to help anybody at the office. I'm, I'm, everything's just, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm learning more stuff that's making me better. Um, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm... I'm I'm, I've got a lot of autonomy. I've worked a deal with my boss where he just gives me what he wants to have happen. He gives me the goal, doesn't tell me how to do it, and I do it. And so I'm, I'm feeling really good there. But I'm not, I'm not actually connected to anybody at the office. I'm not helping anybody. I'm not providing a, you know, my, my compassion or my service to anyone. So almost all of our exercises start with, start with a, here's, a little, here's a little framework, do an assessment. Right. Then the second step, step is what do you notice? Huh. I'm a little light on uh, helping others. And then what's the one small change you can make this week? Not some giant, you know, I'm going to change my life thing. I'm going to run a marathon and lose 50 pounds. So like, what's the small change you can make this week that will change the assessment and then just keep doing that. And again, over six to eight weeks or 10 to 12 weeks, you will discover 
you did not redesign your job. You redesigned your experience of it. And now it's a little bit better. Right. Right. Yeah. And it was based on intrinsic motivations. You need no one's permission to increase your competence. You need no one's permission to increase your relatedness to the other people in the office. You need no one's permission to decide how you want to get something done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that I thought was great. Um, You came out with all these, all these worksheets are up on the website or you can just make a worksheet with three columns. (laughs) You know, what did I learn? Who did I help? You know, and, 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 you know, put Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they're, they're not tricky worksheets, but they're all available as PDFs for free. Oh, on nice. The nice. Um, you mentioned that you came out with the book, uh, designing your work life right at the beginning of the pandemic and that you had to rewrite several, yeah. you know, chapters. And I was just thinking about the connectedness piece of that. Like if you're in the office, you can get there a few minutes early and make the coffee. That's something that you can do for others. You can, you know, there's yeah. so many things. How how do you recommend people cope with that if they're, you know, working remotely? Because there is this, you know, there is this disconnect then in terms of one of those major uh, categories you talked about, connectedness. Like how do we still have that connectedness when we're working remotely? You know, it. It's hard, but uh, it's much harder, uh, you know. And when and, you know, we we launched the book in the beginning of May, March, twenty twenty. Twenty twenty. We were in New York. We did the whole thing with the you know media and a big launch. And then by the time I flew home, they were shutting down, you know, New York. And I got in back to San Francisco just before they shut down San Francisco. So, um, our, our wonderful editor at Knopf, Vicki Wilson, called us up about a year into the thing, and she said, "Look, the world of work has changed. We need to reissue this book. Give me, give me some chapters on what's changed." And we did a deep dive on, you know, with empathy, like what's going on and how are people coping and stuff. Um, but again, you know, if you just did good, good human, you know, hygiene on things. We are at the lab. We always start the lab meeting, no matter how busy we are and how much we have to cover. We start the lab meeting with a check-in and it's a little bit of mindfulness about getting everybody in the room right? and how you're doing. And we all, and we come up with a prompt, like, you know, what was the most uh, delightful thing that happened to you this week? Or, you know, what was one thing you did for someone else? And we all talk and it get one, it, it, it establishes that the meeting has, start, has begun. It gets us present in the room and not thinking about other stuff. And uh, we did that. We do that in person all the time, and we do a checkout. Mm. So there's a little bit of a ritual around a con- setting a container for the meeting in the middle. We double down on that in Zoom, mm. in remote remote practice, because the two things that happen that are even harder to manage is this, what's what's the container in Zoom? Yeah, well, let's put these little squares. Right. Um, I could I could you know I. I, I could be in the meeting. I could be sending emails and texts and stuff while you guys are talking and, you know, who knows what's going on. Right. Um, so the opportunity for people to be, you know, have their attention fractured or diluted is so high. So we always do a check-in now in zoom and, you know, uh, something like your, your, your meditation moments, something mindful to just remember to connect to each other first as people. Right. Because if it's true that people want a life with a job in it, start the conversation with how's life going. Right. And then we do a checkout. And when we went online, 
for classes, you know, the March 2020 was like spring break. And then I huddled, huddled all my teaching teams. And I said, okay, we're going to have to teach online. It's no longer a class. It's a radio show. I want intro music. I want exit music. I want really snappy commercials in the middle. I want, um, I want no segment of the class to last longer than eight or 10 minutes. Wow. And, and I want at least one or two physical breaks, you know, where we get up and we move around and we do something because otherwise, you know, I, I used to tell people there's nothing, we don't teach with lectures primarily. We do exercises and, you know, problem-based learning. I, but I said, there's nothing worse than a, than a lecture except a lecture on Zoom. <laughs> it's so boring, right? It's so true. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite comments when we were doing the research was a woman who said, yeah, you know, during that long, boring staff meeting that my, um, my boss has, I fold laundry. I tell them, oh, I don't have enough bandwidth today. And I turn off my camera and I fold laundry because basically nothing ever happens in that meeting and I get a lot done. <laughs> right. That's exercising autonomy, right? Right, yeah. A better solution would be say, hey, boss, can we redesign this meeting? Because two hours is a lot of time for us to be all be sitting around, you know, right. texting and playing Wordle while you talk. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Really you know, that's what happens. So much was revealed in, in work in Zoomland. We call it the human in the room. That senior vice president who likes to drone on and on and on has a big office in the corner. He's just a guy. He's just a guy on Zoom with a cat who walks back and forth across the screen, or you know the, that long, boring meeting that that you know the woman in uh, you know quality had where we had to listen to all these statistics. She's just a she's just a lady who has you know two kids who run around in the background. Yeah. So everybody became human, and all the trappings of you know status and baloney just disappeared. And actually, people were more productive because they could get work done on their own time frame and they could still be there when the FedEx guy came for the package and they could take their kids, you know, to the to the dentist and still get their work done. Right. So that genie's out of the bottle. People love that, you know, sense of autonomy. They still want to be in the office for some kind of a connection. And if you design the office experience well, people will come. Mm -hmm. But the notion that they have to be there so you can supervise them is just baloney. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just how Elon Musk demanded that everyone come to Tesla 40 hours, at least 40 hours a week. He was, he was clear to say, you have to be there at least 40 hours a week. And he thinks he's got some kind of control over these people because he's Elon Musk. <laughs> he doesn't control at all. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You have already talked a little bit about this uh, idea about reframing. And I think you may have even yeah, given some examples about, about reframing. But mm -hmm. one of the big reframes that you use is this idea of good enough for now yeah. versus, you know, perfect, I guess, mm -hmm. versus perfection. Yeah. So would you talk about what do you mean by good enough for now? And why is it important as a reframe? I think it's a really important reframe and partly because you know i drew the short straw when you write a books like this you have to write a for the for the publisher a book proposal you write a competitive analysis so i had to read all the self-help books and all the workbooks about you know how to make your job amazing and how to make yourself perfect three easy steps to perfection or the secret is going to change your life and all these books are full of baloney uh, and they're not based on any research right. so so, and they're all, and the underlying premise is somehow or other, you can perfect your life and you can, and you can achieve some kind of peak, great experience continuously. You can 
you know, be as bright and shiny as the, you know, the guy in the front of the stage who's yelling at you and telling you to live your best life. First of all, you can't optimize something that's so, you know, amorphous. It's, uh, there's many, and our, our point is there's many good lives in you. Just let's work with the one you got and let's figure out how to make it a little better. But this notion of perfection, which, which is all over Silicon Valley, it's all over the, you know, the world. It's like somehow you're going to achieve some kind of perfect life. It's just not true. There's just no evidence that it's true. And it's driving people crazy. So the reframe is, isn't that you should accept mediocrity or accept things that aren't good, but like take an assess where you're at, figure out what changes you'd like to make and make small incremental changes. It's proven over and over again in the science of behavior change that the way you make persistent, you know, permanent changes is in small doable steps. Yeah, the classic example is you say, you know, it's, it's um, January 1st and I'm going to do my New Year's resolutions and I'm going to run a marathon this year. <laughs> That's right. But you don't have a plan. So within a few months, you're, you're back to where you were. If you really want to run a marathon, what you do is you say, um, okay, step one, I got my phone. I'm doing about 4,000 steps a day, sometimes maybe 3,000. Could I get to 5,000 steps consistently every day for two weeks? Accomplished? Maybe it took you three weeks, but you accomplished it. Now can I get to 10,000? Now can I get to, you know, 15,000? Now could I add in, you know, a half marathon? Can I, could I walk a 5K? Could I walk a 12K? Mm-hmm. Right. You do it in small steps because, because then your, your brain says, oh, I, I, got a, I got a little hit of endorphins because I accomplished 5,000 steps. Mm-hmm. I accomplished 10,000 steps. The problem with saying I'm going to run a marathon and not breaking it into small parts is that nothing you do in the first six months looks anything like a marathon. <laughs> Your brain keeps telling you, no, no, it ain't there yet, ain't there yet, ain't there yet. Yeah. And, and you eventually, you can't persist. Right. So, so good enough for now is the reframe for, hey, you know, maybe there's something in my job I don't like, but let's, let's do the good work journal for eight weeks, come on, eight weeks. I've been, I've been at this job for 15 years, you know, eight weeks. What's the big deal? I'll do eight weeks and see what I notice. And then uh, I could take that data and go to my boss and say, could, I want to redesign my job a little bit. What I'm noticing is um, that the part I really like is helping train other people about what we do. Could I be on the, uh, you know, the group that does the onboarding and I'll do the, the technical training part because I really like that. I mean, I'm offering to do more work that is important to the organization's objectives. It's got to be aligned with the organization, right? Can't just be, well, I'd, I'd like to teach basket weaving because that really turns <laughs> me on. I mean, unless you make baskets, you know, for a living, it's not, not important. But if you can align what you want to do and, and put it and tell the story in, in the right way, right. you'd be surprised. Half the time, people are unhappy because they haven't even asked for what they want. Right. And the reason they haven't asked for what they want is they don't know it. And it's not going to come to you in a sudden epiphany, typically. It comes to you in these small steps. What did I notice? Oh, I'd like to help people more. Okay, well, how can I design that into my job? Okay, that's, now that's working pretty well. What else do I notice? Well, now that I'm here in this new place where I've got a little more satisfaction, I'm noticing this other thing. Right. Add that in. Or if I could subtract something. There's a story in the book about a young woman who's a fantastic programmer. She loves programming. She loves the art of programming. It's almost poetry to her. She hates meetings about project management. <laughs> but because she made, she managed to be so good at what she does, they made her a manager. 
which is not, not always the right thing to do, she, she ends up in these meetings that she hates and she feels really inadequate. And suddenly a job that she loves is now one where she goes in every, you know, every Thursday for the project management meeting and just dreads it. Great. You know, do I want to keep a really productive programmer who's an amazing technical mentor and manager? Yes. Do I want to drive her crazy by making her do project management? No. Mm -hmm. Redesign the job, right? So, so right. once you know, once you've got these little assessments and you know how to make the next thing good enough, and good enough, by the way, good enough for now, not good enough, like I'm, I'm going to settle for this mediocre situation. I'm going to make things a little bit better every six to eight weeks <clears throat> in a year. That's going to result in eight to 12 changes. Right. That's going to be a significant year. Right. And it starts in small increments. So good enough for now is a critical reframe, particularly for people who are beating themselves up because they can't somehow get to the perfect job or the perfect life. It, it, you know, the Dave and I will say the, you know, the, 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 the strive for perfection is eliminating the possibility of the many um, you know, the good, there's good, better, and best. The, the striving for best eliminates the many possible betters. There's right. so many possible betters out there that are, that are actually available and doable versus the, you know, un, un, unaccomplishable, best, or perfect. So the enemy of, you know, per, perfection is that it eliminates the many, many betters that are possible. Yeah, no, I, I love that. Here we are the end of our time together, I wanted to give you a couple of minutes. We always ask this question at the end. So in closing, what words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to leave with our listeners? Um, well, you, you started with the, your, your moment of mindfulness to bring us to the here and now. Um, and we talked a little bit in, in, in some, some of the other correspondence about there's a sign over the studio, the graduate studio says you are here. And it was actually a student invented it and then we kept it because it was such a powerful thing. Design starts in the here and now, it starts now. And it starts with, hmm, what do I notice? Empathy for myself and empathy for the world. So have empathy, have compassion. The, the solutions are in the world and typically they're in the world in your service to others. So start now, start with compassion and empathy. Um, and, you know, caveat, toxic boss, uh, sexist, horrible workplace, get out. You don't deserve that. Find a way out. You don't, you don't deserve to be treated that way. But in most places, it, the, the available better is right there. Mm. There's a quote I love from Shin, uh, uh, Shinru Suzuki, who was the founder of the Zen Center, or one of the, the masters of the Zen Center in San Francisco. And he said, if you can't find enlightenment right where you are right now, where do you expect to find it? So it's not in the future. It's not somewhere else. Design starts right now with, with deciding it's a problem you want to have. Right. And then take one small doable action and that will turn on your creativity and your agency and your autonomy and then our experiences people can make amazing amazing changes and build the life they want oh 
So beautiful. Thank you so much for that. You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. <clears throat> it's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of The Yoga Hour. My guest today has been Bill Burnett. He's the co-author of the book, Designing Your New Work Life. And Bill presents classes on how to use design thinking to help you become unstuck. You can find out more about Bill Burnett's work and his programs at his website, designyour.life, and on Twitter, at D Your Life and at W Burnett. A link to his website will also be posted on our website, theyogahour.com. Thank you so much, Bill, for joining me today on the podcast. Well, thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation. For listeners, we hope you'll join us for the many online programs offered by the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. Currently, we offer daily online meditation in the morning at 6.30 a.m., it's Pacific time in the afternoon at 4 p.m. and on Monday evenings at 7.30. All those are Pacific time. We also offer Sunday satsang at 10 a.m. each week. Yogacharya O'Brien, the spiritual director of this program and also of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment is currently offering a satsang series on the five elements, which you can access on her website, ellengraceobrien.com and she's done four of the five elements earth water fire and air and on sunday june 12th 2022 she will finish out the series talking about space discover unbounded delight the freedom of wholeness Learn more about Yogacharya O'Brien and the CSE programs at csecenter.org and ellengraceobrien.com. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. Uh, join us next time on the show when I'll be joined by Octavia Rahim, yoga teacher and author of the book, Pause, Rest, Be. We will be discussing how being still can help us to build our inner resources in times of change. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers, Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, and Christine Sote. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Mm -hmm.